Section 2 of The Machine That Saved the World by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The lieutenant turned into the communications building. Sergeant Belouze followed at leisure. A jeep went past him, one of the special jeeps being developed at this particular installation, and its driver was talking to someone in the back seat, but the jeep matter-of-factly turned out to avoid Sergeant Belouze. He glowed. He'd activated it. Another good machine, gathering sound experience day by day. He went into the room where Betsy stood, the communicator which, alone among receiving devices in the whole world, picked up the enigmatic broadcast consistently. Betsy was a standard Mark IV communicator, now carefully isolated from any aerial. She was surrounded by recording devices for vision and sound, and by the most sensitive and complicated instruments yet devised for the detection of short-wave radiation. Nothing had yet been detected reaching Betty, but something must. No machine could originate what Betsy had been exhibiting on her screen and emitting from her speakers. Sergeant Belouz tensed instantly. Betsy's standby light quivered hysterically from bright to dim and back again. The rate of quivering was fast. It was nearly a sine wave modulation of the light, and when a Mahan-modified machine goes into sine wave flicker, it is the same as chain stokes breathing in a human. He plunged forward. He jerked open Betsy's adjustment cover and fairly yelped his dismay. He reached in and swiftly completed corrective changes of amplification and scanning voltages. He balanced a capacity bridge. He soothed the sawtooth resonator. He seemed to know by sheer intuition what was needed to be done. After a moment or two, the standby lamp wavered slowly from near extinction to half brightness and then to full brightness and back again. It was completely unrhythmic and very close to normal. Who done this? demanded the sergeant furiously. He had Betsy close to fatigue collapse. He ought to be court-martialed. He was too angry to notice the three civilians in the room with the colonel and the lieutenant who'd summoned him. The young officer looked uncomfortable, but the colonel said authoritatively, Never mind that, sergeant. Your Betsy was receiving something. It wasn't clear. You had not reported as ordered, so an attempt was made to clarify the signals. Okay, colonel, said Belouz bitterly. You got the right to spoil machines, but if you want them to work right, you got to treat them right. Just so, said the colonel. Meanwhile, this is Dr. Howe, Dr. Graves, and Dr. Lecky. Sergeant Belouz, gentlemen. Sergeant, these are not M.D.'s. They've been sent by the Pentagon to work on Betsy. Betsy don't need no working on, said Sergeant Belouz belligerently. She's a good, reliable, experienced machine. If she's handled right, she'll do better work than any machine I know. Granted, said the colonel. She's doing work now that no other machine seems able to do, drawing scrambled broadcasts from somewhere that can only be guessed at. They've been unscrambled, and these gentlemen have come to get the data on Betsy. I'm sure you'll cooperate. What kind of data you want, demanded Belouz. I can answer most questions about Betsy. Which, the colonel told him, is why I sent for you. These gentlemen have the top scientific brains in the country, sergeant. Answer their questions about Betsy, and I think some very high brass will be grateful. 
By the way, it is ordered that from now on no one is to refer to Betsy or any work on these broadcasts over any type of electronic communication. No telephone, no communicator, no teletype, no radio, no form of communication except Viva Voce. And that means you're talking to somebody else, Sergeant, with no microphone around. Understand? And from now on, you will not talk about anything at all except to these gentlemen and to me. Sergeant Palouse said incredulously, Suppose I got to talk to somebody in the rehab shop. Do I signal with my ears and fingers? You don't talk, said the colonel flatly. Not at all. Sergeant Palouse shook his head sadly. He regarded the colonel with such reproach that the colonel stiffened. But Sergeant Belouze had a gift for machinery. He had what amounted to genius for handling Mahan modified devices. So long as no more competent men turned up, he was apt to get away with more than average. The colonel frowned and went out of the room. The tall young lieutenant followed him faithfully. The sergeant regarded the three scientists with the suspicious air he displayed to everyone not connected with Mahan unit in some fashion. Well, he said with marked reserve, what can I tell you first? Lecky was the smallest of the three scientists, he said ingratiatingly, with the faintest possible accent in his speech. The nicest thing you could do for us, Sergeant, would be to show us that this Betsy, is it, with other machines before her, has developed a contagious machine insanity. It would frighten me to learn that machines can go mad, but I would prefer it to the other explanations for the messages she gives. Betsy can't go crazy, said Belouz with finality. She's Mahan-controlled, but she hasn't got what it takes to go crazy. A Mahan unit fixes a machine so it can loaf and be a permanent dynamic system that can keep acquired habits of operating. It can take training. It can get to be experienced. It can learn the tricks of its trade, so to speak, but it can't go crazy. Too bad, said Lecky, he added persuasively, but a machine can lie, Sergeant. Would that be possible? Sergeant Belouze snorted in denial. The broadcast, said Lecky mildly, claim a remarkable reason for certainty about an extremely grave danger which is almost upon the world. If it's the truth, Sergeant, it is appalling. If it's a lie, it may be more appalling. The Joint Chiefs of Staff take it very seriously. In any case, they... I got cold shivers, said Sergeant Belouze with irony. I'm all wrought up. Huh, the big brass gets the yelling yollops every so often anyhow. Listen to them, and nothing happens except it's top priority, top secret, extra crash emergency. What do you want to know about Betsy? There was a sudden squealing sound from the communicator on which all the extra recording devices were focused. Betsy's screen lighted up. Peculiarly curved patterns appeared on it. They shifted and changed. Noises came from her speaker. They were completely unearthly. Now they were shrill past belief, and then they were chopped into very small bits of sound, and again they were deepest bass, when each separate note seemed to last for seconds. You might, said Lackey calmly, tell us from where your Betsy gets the signal, she reports in this fashion. There were whirrings as recorders trained upon Betsy captured every flickering on her screen and every peeping noise or, or deep-toned rumble. The screen pattern changed with the sound, but it was not linked to it. 
it was a completely abnormal reception. It was uncanny. It was somehow horrible because so completely remote from any sort of human communication in the year 1972. The three scientists watched with worried eyes. A communicator, even with a Mahan unit in it, could not originate a pattern like this, and this was not conceivably a distortion of anything transmitted in any normal manner in the United States of America or the Union of Compubs or any other of the precariously surviving small nations not associated with either colossus. This is a repeat broadcast, said one of the three men suddenly. It was Howell, the heavy-set man. I remember it. I saw it projected like this and then unscrambled. I think it's the one where the social system's described, so we can have practice at trying to understand. Remember? Lecky said, as if the matter had been thrashed out often before. I do not believe what it says, Hal. You know I do not believe it. I will not accept the theory that this broadcast comes from the future. The broadcast stopped. It stopped dead. Betsy's screen went blank. Her wildly fluctuating standby light slowed gradually to a nearly normal rate of flicker. That's not a theory, said Howell dourly. It's a statement in the broadcast. We saw the first transmission of this from the tape at the Pentagon. Then we saw it with the high-pitched parts slowed down and the deep bass stuff speeded up. Then it was a human voice giving data on the scanning pattern and then rather drearily repeating that history said that intertemporal communication began with broadcasts sent back from 2180 to 1972. It said the establishment of two-way communication was a very difficult and read from a script about social history to give us practice in unscrambling it. It's not a theory to say the stuff originates in the future. It's a statement. Then it's a lie, said Lackey very earnestly. Truly, Howe, it is a lie. Then where does the broadcast come from, demanded Howe. Some say it's a compub trick. But if they were true, they'd hide it for use to produce chaos in a sneak attack. The only other theory, Graves, the man with the short mustache, said jerkily, know-how, it is not an extraterrestrial creature pretending to be a man of our own human future. One could not sleep well with such an idea in his head. If some non-human monster could do this, I do not sleep at all, said Lecky simply, because it says that two-way communication is to come. I can listen to these broadcasts tranquilly, but I cannot bear the thought of answering them. That seems to me madness. Sergeant Blues said approvingly, You got something there. Yes, sir. Did you notice how Betsy's standby light was wobbling while she was bringing in that broadcast? If she could sweat, she'd be sweating. Lecky turned his head to stare at the sergeant. Machines, said Blues profoundly, act according to the golden rule. They do unto you as they would have you do unto them. You treat a machine right and it treats you right. You treat it wrong and it busts itself, still trying to treat you right. See? Lecky blinked. I do not quite see how it applies, he said mildly. Betsy's an old, experienced machine, said the sergeant. A signal that makes her sweat like that has got something wrong about it. Any ordinary machine would break down handling it. Graves said jerkily. The other machines that received these broadcasts did break down, Sergeant. All of them. 
Sure, said the sergeant with dignity. Of course, whose broadcasting may have been tinkering with their signal since they seen it wasn't getting through. Betsy can take it now when younger machines with less experience can't. Maybe a micro-micro-watt of a signal, then it makes her sweat. If she was broadcasting with, with a hell of a more than a micro-micro-watt, it'd be bad. I bet you that every machine we make to broadcast breaks down. I bet... Hal said curtly, reasonable enough. A signal to pass through time as well as space would be different from a standard wave type. Of course, that must be the answer. Sergeant Belouz said truculently, I got a hunch that who's ever broadcasting is busting transmitters left and right. I never knew anything about this before, except that Betsy was picking up stuff that came from nowhere. But I bet if you look over the record tapes, you will find they got breaks where one transmitter switched off or broke down and another took over. Lecky's eyes were shining. He regarded Sergeant Belouz with a sort of tender respect. Sergeant Belouz, he said softly, I like you very much. You have told us undoubtedly true things. Think nothing of it, said the sergeant, gratified. I run the rehab shop here, and I could show you things. We wish you to, said Lecky. The reactions of the machines to these broadcasts is the one viewpoint we would never have imagined. But it is plainly important. Will you help us, Sergeant? I do not like to be frightened, and I am. Sure, I'll help, said Sergeant Belouz largely. First thing is to whip some stuff together so we can find out what's what. You take a few Mahan units and install them and train them right, and they will do almost anything you've a mind for. But you got to treat them right. Machines work by the golden rule always. Come along. Sergeant Belouz went to the rehab shop, followed only by Lecky. All about, the sun shone down upon buildings with a remarkably temporary look about them, and on lawns with a remarkably lush look about them, and on signboards with very black lettering on gray paint backgrounds. There was a very small airfield inside the barbed wire fence about the post, and elaborate machine shops and rows and rows of barracks, and a canteen, and a USO theater, and a post-post office. Everything seemed quite matter-of-fact, except for the machines. They were the real reason for the existence of the post. The barracks and married row dwellings had washing machines, which looked very much like other washing machines, except that they had standby lights, which flickered meditatively when they weren't being used. The television receivers looked like other TV sets, except for the minute and wavering standby lights, which were never quite as bright or dim one moment as the next. The jeeps, used strictly within the barbed wire fence around the post, had similar yellow glowings on their instrument boards, and they were very remarkable jeeps. They never ran off the graveled roads onto the grass, and they never collided with each other, and it was said that the nine-year-old son of a lieutenant colonel had tried to drive one, and it would not stir. Its motor cut off when he forced it into gear. When he tried to restart it, the starter did not turn. But when an adult stepped into it, it operated perfectly. Only it braked and stopped itself when a small child toddled into its path. There were some people who said that this story was not true, but others insisted that it was. Anyhow, the washing machines were perfect. They never tangled clothes put into them. 
it was reported that Mrs. So-and-so's washing machine had found a load of clothes tangled and reversed itself and worked backwards until they were straightened out. Television sets turned to the proper channels, different ones at different times of day, with incredible facility. The smallest child could wrench at a tuning knob, and the desired station came on. All the operating devices of Research Installation 83 worked as if they liked to, which might have been an alarming, except that they had never did anything of themselves. They initiated nothing, but each one acted like an old favorite possession. They fitted their masters. They seemed to tune themselves to the habits of their owners. They were infinitely easy to work right and practically impossible to work wrong. Such machines, of course, had not been designed to cope with enigmatic broadcasts or for military purposes, but the jet planes on the small airfield were very remarkable indeed, and other and lesser devices had been made for better understanding of the Mahan units, which made machines into practically a new order of creation. End of section 2